Ooh, that looks tasty. Support for Boards and Brews comes from Sovereignty. Play board games in a 3D environment on any device. Play smarter. Welcome, folks. Stay the Hunger Gamer is back with another episode of Boards and Brews. And for our 11th episode, we're trying something new. We're doing a special designer edition. And today I'm joined by game designer Johnny Pack. We're going to talk about all things Euro games. But for those of you that know, usually this is just myself and another reviewer just chatting. So we have a one ground rule for today, and that is we are not going to talk about anything that Johnny is related to at all. Point is, we're going to talk about games, not specifically about the stuff that Johnny's done, other than right now. So the rapid fire questions, Johnny. One, who the crap are you? Two, how might people know you from what, what games have you done? What is your shtick as a game designer? And how and why did you get started designing games professionally? All right. That's a lot of questions at once. That's uh, rapid fire. That's how we do, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm all slow and frozen over here. Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I'm a freelance designer developer. I designed Coloma. I co-designed Merchant's Cove with Carl Van Oster Villarreal. And Lions of Lydia is a game I designed, just came out, and as uh, the lead developer on Endless Winter. Uh, so, yeah, lots of games. Uh, Fistful of Meeples, Fair West, and new stuff being listed on BGG as it comes out. So, yeah, I stay busy, and I'm working on a bunch of other little side projects that are not quite announced yet, so I probably shouldn't talk too much about them. But we will uh, speculate. Yeah. Down, down, everybody, down <laughs> in the comments, I want you to speculate. Yeah. As to what kind of game you think Johnny is working on, anything you think, because he might come, he might pick them up, he might do them. And then the last one was, uh, how and why did you get started actually designing games? Um, well, I got into Euro games in the, in the mid two thousands. Uh, I was introduced on two sides of my family: of uh, my dad on the one side and my half brother on the other side, who uh, both got into Euro games from their various connections and would kind of shove them in front of me and uh, so I was introduced to Catan and was not really blown away with it uh, it was okay and I had fun with it but it was Carcassonne that got me all hooked and so from there uh, I got all excited and started buying some of my own games and eventually it led to trying to make my own games after after a little bit I ran into some game designers I saw them making games and they were not necessarily uh, good right out the gates, like art and music and some other things where uh, the artist kind of just reveals this crystalline perfect thing that they've been working on. Uh, I realize that games just get tested and beat up on and changed and modified and a lot of people have input on them and I saw a little bit of the process. And so I thought that was pretty fascinating and it made it a little less intimidating to try to put some stuff together and know that not going to be perfect at first it's going to be broken and maybe it'll end up something so i started with that and then i uh my first prototype signed and then i had kind of a nightmare story where that everything you don't want to have happen to a game happened to that game and me so uh it just took of bouncing off the bottom of the rocks there for about five years until i was able to get my bearings again and uh find myself in a position where i could pitch my work and uh get some breakthrough stuff. And that was really kind of around 2018, 2019 when several of my games got picked up kind of, and they kind of came out all at once like in concert. And so I think that 
made a little bit more awareness of me as a designer than just simply releasing one game every couple of years or something like that, trying to build a blog. Um, so that helped. And then, uh, yeah, from there, I was able to pick up a lot of development work because that's something else I've been interested in is trying to work on other people's games and refine them, which was, I think, a nat natural progression from going to proto spiels, uh, showing people my games, having them work on that, and then afterwards playing their games and talking about their stuff. It's felt very natural to um, help games along. And so I, I decided for to anybody who to doesn't know, a a proto spiels, I didn't know what a proto spiel was um mm -hmm. until i showed up the one it's kind of a, a everyone brings their, their 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 rough draft of their games the things that they're working on and everyone just plays everybody's games and you give feedback afterwards what do you like what didn't you like and i think the most amazing thing about them is the amazing lack of butthurtedness that comes out of these <laughs> people are giving real feedback sometimes oh yeah yeah for sure yeah it's a yeah it's definitely like that and it's not um it's not mean feedback or mean spirited. I think that's part of it. Is the whole thing is constructive generally and or seen that way. Even the people try to learn that a bad play test is still you'd rather have one bad play test now than have thousands of people buy your game in the market and hate it because you didn't have that bad play test and didn't fix things before. So um, I, I see it as a bullets dodged is what happens when you have a, a bad play test and you have the opportunity to go change that stuff and make it better. Uh, and I see you just picked up your, your brew, sir. So before we jump into the next part, what is your brewed beverage of choice right now? I brewed up some uh, Tetley tea and made iced tea out of it and put some splash of peach juice in there. So as a summertime Ooh. drink. Classy. Mm -hmm. And I myself have a uh, Villager IPA from Fort Point. But let's jump into the actual game podcast. And so the first one we're starting out with, what have you been playing recently? And what do you got on your table right now? Which might be two different things. Might be two different things. Or multiple different things. Well, I've been playing prototypes and stuff like that, mostly through TTS or, or with... Uh for work but if we're not going to talk about stuff that i'm working on um i haven't played a lot of stuff recently because i haven't been around a lot of people lately so it's a little bit of a dry spell uh, if i kind of roll myself back maybe a month or so i could think of a few games that uh i've played um but yeah not, nothing in in a while which is bad for me because i feel like i always like to stay fresh and play a lot of games to, to know what's going on but it's been kind of a dry spell this month so on my table i have got some uh you know game design books and things like that that i'm working on doing some research on that sort of stuff um so it, in the absence of playing games i'm i'm doing some research then yeah, well, into books, what, what books you got? <laughs> so well um it's a pretty little simple one right here it's basically it's a it's on my table you have it's 100 things every designer needs to know about people and it's runs over short, obviously short chapters about a lot of things about a uh, user experience and user psychology and stuff like that. And it touches on a lot of things. Um, a lot of it stuff I've already learned, which is good because it's like, cool, I, you know, this first seven, I already know these things, but there might be something I don't know. And that's uh, either if it's of interest, it references a lot of other uh, rabbit holes you could go down. So I found it pretty, pretty useful. And uh, there, there's some stuff I think in user interface stuff and uh, product design and psychology that uh, 
you know, like those weird things that last a long time, like, oh, you only use 10% of your brain or whatever. And that's been disproven for a long time, but you hear that stupid stuff being regurgitated. Um, this book, it's a second edition. It just came out last year. So it seems like there's quite a few spots in there where it will uh, kind of set for the record. Uh, it It is this way or the other way or the jury's out, like some arguments about whether or not uh, serif or sans serif fonts are easier to read. Um, and I think we all know comics just a, is the answer. <laughs> yeah, papyrus is just awesome for every, but um, yeah. So like little, little things like that. And it's, I think that's important uh, for, you know, not just the graphic designers and typographers to think about things like that, but even if you make a prototype and you use a really funky font or you just chicken scratch in your own handwriting, or use papyrus or comic sans uh, it is going to change a little bit of the play test even if you tell don't judge my handwriting or please uh you know this isn't final uh, if they're struggling to understand stuff when they play it you're experiencing a struggle while they're playing your game and that experience might not have been there if the struggle was supposed to be in the game not to understand the the card itself and that sort of thing so i think even in an early stage we can look at just using things that are very clear um to help the games along yeah and you you, you talk about it talks about stuff like uh, about psychology now i'm going to ask the question that most people are listening or watching or thinking like what does psychology got to do with my game like how, how is that <laughs> how are you putting psychology in the game wow uh yeah, I feel like those things are inseparable. I mean, we're making, humans are making games for humans. It's like music. It's like, you know, people make music for people, music for people. It's So I feel like in a sense, the games are, you know, not some science or puzzle that we're trying to solve in the universal absolute sense, but things that are amusing to people with senses and brains and things like this that will go in and use these things so the whole thing really comes down to psychology i think uh and we look at the psychology on so many different levels from just uh ease of use like product design sort of stuff or fun soft incentive like the toy factorness of uh, games where it's fun to play with things uh maybe you're just amusing in general like marbles like uh in a potion or something like that um or things like Rhino Hero, it's stacking stuff. I, I, there's there's no reason why that's intrinsically a good thing to do is to stack a bunch of things and put a rhino on top of it. But if you watch any human being play that, <laughs> it lights up part of their brain and their, their social everything comes to life, right? So uh, to me, it's it's really the the finding the fun, the psychology, the player psychology, all that stuff is uh, games are a vehicle for that. It's a medium for that sort of thing. And so I'm trying to understand player psychology, like uh, feel bad moments is something that is, starts being said a lot at proto spiels now. It's like, well, I think there's a feel bad moment there where uh, I went to the market in this game and there's no cards left for me. And that was a feel bad moment because I wasted my action. Uh, that would be a true statement. And maybe some of the biggest feel bad moments is in fact, uh, skipping a turn, losing a turn. A game says, if you go in this spot, bop, bop, you lose a turn. And uh, that's one of the biggest no-nos in modern game design is turn skipping is just almost unacceptable because even if you're doing badly or things are going quickly games, they let you at least have your your time on in the game. And so you have that. And then 
uh, that would be like player elimination where you take no more turns. Um, and fewer and fewer games, I think, are in uh, serious game or allowing for player elimination where maybe some party games and things like that where it's, you know, um, or uh, their games, player elimination obviously is still fine because the game is terminated as soon as one person loses. Um, yeah, so things like that. So looking at feel bad moments, also trying to look at what makes games uh, really fun. Uh, app designers and stuff are always looking at what makes them, what makes people like compulsive, what, what are they going to spend money on and kind of um, as maybe some perverse incentives there. So I think with board games, we want to make somebody feel very satisfied with the purchase of their of what's in that box and not basically just be like, hey, here's a free trial of this game and we're going to try to sell you stuff to make it that's not in the the uh sales structure of of what we're trying to provide we're trying to provide a expensive nice game with expensive parts that should be just good and intact feel good with your your purchase of it and as you reuse it with replay value whatever else that you're going to get mileage out of it that um you will feel good about and that's that's good. We're not we don't want people that buyers remorse. We don't necessarily want them to be addicted to the game if it's not a collectible card uh, or an app or um, things like that. So even looking at like a marketing perspective, yeah, we want to get some zing and get people to like it. But uh, are we trying to get them addicted to it? Maybe actually not. Um, I think we're trying to make people satisfied. Well, but, you know, if you could come up with the true microtransaction board game, I bet you every (laughs) publisher in the world would be like, let me have that. You know, you get a little button on your app that comes with your board game. You just push the button, and the next day you get a new little little module. Your little Johnny Pack module shows up. Yeah, I don't want to get in that racket. Oh my gosh, yeah, that'd be that'd be something. I I have talked to publishers. I've thought about think where you have uh, something that's kind of running in the background on an app that if you don't play a game for a, a period, something will have expired or or gotten better in the time where it's sitting on your shelf for some duration to try to incentivize you to play it or not play it at certain intervals in some like metagame kind of way. But um, again, that's, that's just an area I really, really don't want to get into. I like the idea of the five games for doomsday that you go out to the cabins in the woods. And if in fact, it's just you and a handful of people, you bring these few games out there and they are everything you need in that box to play that game. The, uh, you know, you I could mean, make a nice module for Agricola where you leave it on the shelf and it actually grows, right? <laughs> what, the Chia? Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. The the, the Chia, Chia Agricola. It's brilliant. <laughs> You'll make $12. Um, but you, you, you were talking about, about Rhino Superhero, and, and I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought a Rhino. But what is it, Rhino? Yeah, I think it's Rhino Hero and then Super Hero is like the, the bigger box version. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because that is the about the furthest away you can get from what we're talking about today being Euro games. There's nothing Euro about Rhino Hero Super Battle at all. Really? It's, I mean, it's it's probably Habo, which is one of Europe's biggest... Uh, you know publishers so it's i mean well see i'm glad you said that too because you know uh uh the snarky person we say well our first real question is what what is a euro game they say well it's from europe well you know you're not from yeah right (laughs) you know oh so so what oh you know i didn't even say what i what i've been playing lately i 
left myself out of here. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'll come what back are you playing? Let me ask you. Yes. Oh, well, so on my table Wait. right now, I have a prototype for a game coming up called uh, Soul, Soul Raiders. It's a, a solo or cooperative game, kind of along the lines of a, a Destinies here that I got behind me. It's a very story-driven game, and it's literally sitting there waiting for me to play the first time. I'm not sure if it's a deck builder for your heroes or you just have a deck that you're cycling through, but it has a little choose your own adventure vibe to it. So it's like, oh, Johnny, you're at the locked door. You want to try to pick the lock or you want to climb the wall? What are you going to do? <laughs> and then there's two cards sitting there. If you do one, you flip the card and it tells you what it is you're going to try to do. And then if you succeed or, you know, whatever, then there's all these different locations you're moving around. So very story based, it seems. So hoping okay. that's going to be cool yeah. it's, it's very much the rage that style of storytelling game right now so i'm i'm, I'm hopeful yeah I, I sensed that stuff was you know in the i get a little bit um i hear about things that are in the pipeline because when you pitch to co companies they tell you sometimes what they're looking for even if they reject your game or you just ask what are you looking for what's in your pipeline what are you trying to build your catalog with and the last couple of years i've heard a lot of choose your own adventure story narrative driven or legacy-based uh, stuff. And so uh, I've definitely was, I'm not going to be surprised when I see a lot of that coming out in the next two years because of what I've heard about in the pipeline. Um, and it's also one of those things where it's it's one of the, I don't know if that's a mechanic, choose your own adventure or, or what it is, but it's something that um, I'm not into it. Like I didn't even like the Black Mirror Bandersnap very much. I found it kind of disturbing if you've watched or played that. Uh, <laughs> where i'm a big well, black mirror did, fan did you like those books when you were a kid i read one uh, it was like transformers or something in the late 80s thought it was kind of cool um it was i think it's amusing you know when you discover that here's a branch and it could go to your you're kind of compelled to like look what would have happened if i didn't do the thing well the um, answer is you would have died like that, that's always the answer in those <laughs> maybe yeah yeah i mean i i did play like um the board and dice one, the the awakening and all that. Uh, what was it? Escape Tales or whatever it's called. So it's basically like a five hour escape room kind of thing, and it's got a lot of this. What you do is going to determine where you end up in that game, and uh, has I don't know five, six, seven endings, and uh, they're as far as I know, majority of them aren't good endings, and uh, I, I wouldn't play it and over and over again just to see the different endings and i think there is that kind of like yeah i spent my five hours i got the ending that tied into what we did and then you kind of want to look and see like where else could this ended up and be like oh wow that could have gotten really dark or wow there's only one good ending <laughs> wonder how you get there right um that's that sort of thing yeah well so i mean for me I, i'm big in the narrative in, in games like that, that that'll hook and then the one i've been playing a lot of stuff once lately like a whole mm -hmm. bunch of stuff just once. So sure. the one that's kind of been stuck in my brain the most is uh, this game from IDW called Galaxy Hunters. It's a Euro game that the, the, the reason I backed it, I mean, my buddies said, ah, oh, this is, this is totally for you. It's got like Euro and worker placement and like you're improving your workers. And I was like, okay. And it's about being a giant stompy mech flying around the universe and killing giant mutants that are ravaging the galaxy. Like, all right. I can get behind that. That's a game. Okay. 
<laughs> you know, like, I mean, what are you going to do if there's mutant ravaging the galaxy, right? You're going to get in your giant stompy mech. Um, yeah, if it's got Crocs on, I'd be all, all about it. I want a Croc. Oh, you see, you, you need to get in touch with them and get the, the Johnny Pack uh, promo mech. And so I've been, I played it once or twice. I played, I played it once, just played it two-handed to kind of figure it out, see how it works. Then uh, a buddy of both of ours, a Bernie Lynn from Deadline of Games, he came down, we played it. And the consensus was, but every time I played, I was like, there's too many resources in this dumb game. Because there's mm. 10 different resources that you're tracking. It's a lot of resources. Oh. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, so there's 10 different resources, which just it just feels like too much. Too many resources. You got this huge board and you got all these little shits you're moving around. And really, I just want to go stomp on some monsters. And you know, but you're moving around mm-hmm. to get the resources, to get the right resources so you can buy the stuff to upgrade your giant stompy mechs and go kill the things. And then you got to make sure you have enough ammo and energy and armor and you know, whatever, all that stuff. But so we, we played it through once and our, our thoughts were. But one, we kind of wanted to play it again, which I think is always a good sign, right? Because we started playing and we're like, I don't know about this game. This might have been a bad buy. But at the end, we're like, that was kind of fun. Kind of want to play again. And so my two complaints are one, all the resources. And the other one was Mm -hmm. the combat's totally determinative. Like, you don't go to the planet to fight the monster if you don't have the stuff. And Eh, okay this is not... yeah you just it's, it's like it's like contract fulfillment called fighting monsters yeah yeah it was more of a contract fulfillment and that is not satisfying when we're talking about killing giant mutants ravaging the planet so but they have an expansion that we didn't play with that i got which turns that combat a little more random adds dice into it so instead of you know you're going to do five damage it's you're going to roll five dice and those dice are probably going to do one damage there's a small chance they do zero there's a small chance they do two. Um, yeah, and sure. I was talking to somebody, you know, about the math of it. And apparently, you know, the more dice you have, the your average number you're going to get on your dice is going to go. You know, you got six dice, you're going to average like six point three or something. You know, whatever. But you have that possibility now to where, gosh, I really need to get some points right now. I'm going to go try to fight this monster. I got, I got two dice. I'm going to roll them. Maybe I'll get lucky. But it added a little bit of that kind of excitement and made it feel more like a narrative of a story because I might just show up and have a, I might've, you know, been out drinking too long the night before my pilots doing a bad job. Um, <laughs> and there's more, uh, there's more stuff with the expanse that we didn't try. We just tried that. And so we finished and it was, it was more exciting. And again, we were like, it's too many resources, but I will say that now that I played three times, they don't bother me as much. Like maybe it's because I now know better on the board where to find these different resources. Ten seems like I, I don't lot. know what it is. Um, it, it's still, don't get me wrong, it is still too many. But the more times I play, the less fiddly it feels to have 10 different resources or 11 or not. I don't know, whatever. It's too many. I'll make you, I'll make you play something. Yeah. I'll be like, that's too many resources. <laughs> yeah, resource but, is an uh, interesting thing in a design choice to think how many is enough to create the effect and how, you know it's almost like uh use as few as possible it would probably be the rule of thumb 
if it's going to get the job done. If it seems too yeah. trivial with three resource types, then it maybe needs a fourth in order to mix it up. If the yeah, difference between having like, nine and ten is inconsequential, go with nine. Yeah, yeah. It, it just it felt like it was a we want to make all these different planets you go to totally unique, which I get, but I don't know mm. that it added enough to have that. If I need the I don't know, diamond dust, whatever the heck it was. If I, I need diamond, I have to go to this one planet. Well, that's the only place, and that's the only place I can get it. And if I need unobtainium over here, I have to go to this planet. Like, so maybe there's another planet that I can get, you know, like, let's chop them in half. Give me five and just make the combinations that you get from each place different or something. I, I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not a designer, yeah. but that's just what I was thinking. But again, yeah. the point is, though, I want to play it again. So there, there, there's something. Mm -hmm. There's something there. So I'm really been kind of stewing on it, thinking about it. I want to try out the, the rest of this expansion. and Because the rest of the expansion, it has ways to mitigate your dice rolling. So if you really don't want to have to be totally reliant on dice and you like that determinative thing, well, you can still find a way to do it. Balancing that, I guess, playing to the, to the pure Eurogamer. Which brings us to the question, what the crap is a Euro game? Because I have struggled with this <laughs> real, real hard. Well, it's Rhino I, Dice, I, I think, is yeah. a Euro game. And I what, think that's what, how that? they improved uh, Rhino here Super Battles. They had dice to it, so that way you can battle with the Rhinos, too. Um, but I'll tell you well, what, because uh, uh, yeah. uh, we, we <laughs> talked about Euro games before on, on the podcast when uh, Don from Secret Cabal mm -hmm. was on. We talked about it. Sure. And the answer that us two titans of intellect came to was we, we kind of determined that to us, the big difference between a Euro game and the you know Ameri-style games, I don't like to use the word Ameritrash. Mm -hmm. It just sounds so, it sounds so negative. I don't like it. Um, you know, the, oh. the Ameri-style games is in a Euro game, it seems to me, there can be randomness. It can exist, mm -hmm. but it seems to me, to us, that you know the results of the randomness before you're making your choices of what you're doing. And, and the Ameristyle game is you're going to make your choice of what I'm going to do. And you're probably going to rely on randomness to find out if you succeeded. And that, that, that's kind of what we boiled down the core to, but as a true connoisseur of Euro game, what do you think it is? Well, what you're talking about there is jargon is input randomness, output randomness. And so that's, uh, Luckily, those buzzwords have been popularized through uh, Lou Dollard uses those words a lot. Keith Bergen's work has popularized those. And they're even kind of falling into the, you know, people are talking more about it on the street sort of a deal, which I think is good because uh, there's a lot of people which just say, I hate randomness in games. But then you would come up with a counterexample of like, why do you like the game Marco Polo? It's a dice game where you roll a bunch of dice at the start of the round and you have to assign those dice. And they go, oh, well, that's different. It's like, it is, but what's the difference? And as you pointed out, it's input randomness. And then it's a matter of tactically assigning those, or strategically assigning those dice to their best uses once you know that that information uh and then to roll for a result and if let's say an extreme case of output randomness is you go do something and you really don't know what's going to happen until you say roll the dice and they tell you uh what happens and if there's nothing you can do at that point to modify that result afterwards that's kind of on the far extreme side of the output randomness and so it's it is just what is the result and 
some would argue that if you used the result of that to determine your next action, that that is actually the input randomness for the next round, but not necessarily if there's a kind of a blinder, like what they call an information horizon. And so a lot of times um, an information horizon could be somewhere you just can't really know enough to operate on something like, um, let's say in Dominion, you can't know what your next hand is actually going to be. Probabilistically, you know, there's some stuff in your deck, you know, kind of what's in your discard pile and what you're probably going to draw, but less the last five cards and you know exactly what's in there because of the card counting. You, you have to work with what you're going to get. And that would be that little information horizon popping up. And so that's going to be really closely correlated with where this information horizon is the randomness. So if the information horizon is here and then the result of the random element uh, comes very, very close to that abyss where you can't see beyond it and you have to act and step off to the next chapter, uh, it's going to be perceived that way much more. Whereas if the random element is very front-loaded, like it's it's a new round and we all have a fresh hand of cards, well, those are information horizon and the or pretty much simultaneous at that point where you're working with your new hand, the random part, along with the fact it is a fresh round and we will play out the remainder of this round. Uh, intermittent stuff might be something like during this round, every time I play a card, I draw a card. So intermittently you're getting one little piece of input randomness, which will determine what you'll be able to do with your next turn, but the remainder of your card is there. And then the round is still building on that incremental information, which is, uh, path dependent information name state arrived at its subsequent state through the acts of the thing before it and it hasn't been say rinsed or changed completely so um so i think those are factors i don't know if uh we can like brand it well that's your game because it it's, leans on input randomness or output randomness because we could get some other examples from both schools of might just be purely abstract and the only uh, you know piece versus piece sort of thing uh, almost chess-like in certain ways um and those exist in in euro games and those exist in american games so we you know if there's no random element besides what your opponent's going to do what do we call that sort of right it doesn't intrinsically become a euro game because it's it sans uh a random element so I think the answer, if I may get to an answer, is actually that if we call Euro games a genre, like we would call jazz music, if it's kind of two different questions. We ask, what is jazz right now? We'd be looking at what is the contemporary artist who's recording and touring playing jazz and what, how that's perceived. And if they are playing Dixieland, they're not really playing 2021 jazz they're playing 1921 jazz right so it's it would be a throwback style to a particular thing and if we look at jazz from a historic perspective and all that we say what is jazz you have to do a ken burns documentary and it's still not enough to really explain what it is because each movement really progressed other movements things circle back some key players uh you know overlap certain parts of the the area and if we look at the history of games which anybody's curious it's a great book uh, it's kind of dry academic read that's called euro games it's by uh, Stuart woods it talks about the what started the euro game trends which was the 3m bookshelf series 
stuff that was actually American games like um, Sid Sachs's stuff, like Acquire and all that was uh, localized in Germany and Europe. And those things influenced the designers in kind of a post-war Germany that didn't want real conflict in their games. And so they found these other economic uh, tensions to be better than being in your base, blowing up your dudes kind of um, game. And so resonated with those and were building off of those as some of their building blocks. Uh, let's say late 60s, 70s, that stuff's happening. We've got, got the big war games of the 70s, the Avalon Hill, huge amounts of rules complexity and all that stuff that's going on, that generation. And then you get in the 80s where you've got the, the 18xx, which is like uh, those big train games. And those have uh, very, very little uh random elements in them themselves but those were kind of as far as i understand they were started in, in the uk actually and then spread out and they've you know they have always had like building route building and you know how you deal with those and they tend to have a certain arc to them Th that had an influence on stuff and if we kind of looked at everything it was like gonna into what we think of as the euro invasion of spiel the ars lars katan reiner knizia wolfgang kramer these types of characters we're looking at all those things happening from history and all these different spots that eventually kind of led towards what some of those designs are and why they are the way they are and what they're derived from. And overall, the rules, simplicity, and elegance of those games, even though we might say a Euro game from 20 years ago might have some um, thematic and fiddly parts, it didn't have the massive simulation style rule books where in play three hours, like the 18xx, four hours kind of games. They didn't take uh, a giant table for war simulates with, you know, miniatures and line of sight movement and all. They didn't do a lot of things. And a lot of the stuff they didn't do defines what they did do. And so a lot of what they're taking is they're taking a setting and they're abstracting it down to its core elements, economic elements, and trying to create an experience in a after dinner before bedtime sort of setting that is more family friendly you don't need a game day or a specialized room or something to play these and and uh they basically have a lot of those those influences and some of the pastoral stuff stuck through uh you do see a lot of train games all that still which was from the 18x uh influences and you get things like Catan and uh agricola and all these things where it's um you know kind of pastoral and farming things you get stuff where it's building cities and it's constructive uh, and that th those sorts of things kind of resonate with a lot of that stuff right you just get less of i don't know that sort of thing there wasn't a lot of sci-fi stuff really happening because there was in civ games which obviously were to a degree too you'd get your uh 4x style stuff you get your proper sim city sort of civ games all those things and again those are too big in scope um a little bit too video gaming as they branched into that stuff to uh really formulate what we might think of like Catan or something like that where it's in many ways pretty abstracted the setting is here's a place there's resources uh, nobody lives on this island except for this one robber who i don't know who he robs when see that's that's the game that we need we need the robber's story like that that's the game we need uh, um so everybody watching or listening like we just we just want deep future hunger gamer here johnny was having some internet issues at the beginning of our discussion so i apologize for the odd cut for those of you watching the video right here so from 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 what what, what i was kind of hearing it's interesting uh one we just went like way deep into like the history of games which 
I do hope Don from Secret Cabal is listening because now we know just what intellectual lightweight we are um, when we were talking about it. But almost what I'm hearing is, is you're, you're almost saying that you can't really define a Euro game without looking at it alongside the other genres that exist mm-hmm. in some ways. Is, is, is that accurate? Yeah, it, it, it's in context of a kind of temporal thing. You have to look at when it exists in contrast to what. And I guess the usual little straw man thing is like Euro game versus Ameritrash game. It's kind of like, are we talking 2021 Euro game versus a 2021? It's like Ameritrash game. It's like at this point, so many games are hybrid and so many American designers are making things that are effectively Euro games with that aren't just cube pushing because manufacturing allows for things that aren't just cubes anymore because they're being more stuff is being printed in China than actually in Europe with a you know, more laser cut wood versus machined wood, which is meaning that for the cost of a cube, you could get a custom meeple and screen printing isn't as expensive. A lot of things have changed. And so some of the pejorative stuff like, uh, you know, a cube pushing Euro, there's really not a lot of reason to have cubes being pushed around and if, unless people want to i mean terraforming menars is a cube pusher and people love it um, so and some people get metal cubes for that because you know they feel cool so it just depends on what 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 strikes somebody with that stuff like that but um yeah i think it's all in context and as things move forward and jazz again i'll keep bringing back to that or rock you get into these fusion things where it's like once jazz started adopting electric instruments, you look at, you know, Miles Davis, Fitch's Brew, and Herbie Cocker, Headhunters, and all this stuff that started coming afterwards, electric guitars being introduced into jazz after amplifiers were, and pickups were made, how that technology changed some, some of the stuff. And some purists are always going to go, oh, you know, having a Rhodes piano in there, you need to have an acoustic piano and an upright bass for it to be jazz. Otherwise it's not. And it's like, just because you have a horn in your band doesn't mean it's jazz. It's, you could say that like ska or something isn't jazz because there's just horns in it. So it becomes slippery and they try to grab onto something like, oh, well, jazz always has a swing beat. It's like, well, what about bossa nova? And they're like, oh. Um, for everything that you say is like the backbone of it, there's going to be something that is just is it that doesn't have the thing that you're saying is the backbone of it. There's always going to be a counterexample. Um, so I think that's that's one way to look at it. And the, the other half is to look at Euro games and be like, what is a Euro kids game? And then when we get back to Rhino Hero and, and kind of look at that and go like, actually, uh, Rhino Hero is a you know kids game from a European uh, publisher that has its notably machined heavy duty wood and card stock components and we think of a lot of american games we look at as a kid it's a pop-o-matic bubble it's a lot of plastic it's a lot of you know pegs and, and little uh, miniatures and things so it's the difference of the the cardboard and wood aesthetic is still uh seen even in family and in children's games more so in, in the euro style so we can say what's a euro kids game what's a euro party game and you could find some like that. And even some things like what is a Euro co-op versus more American style co-op? And is Euro synonymous with the German school of design? Or is this now opening up to things that are like all the great games that are coming off France and, and Poland is hot right now. It's like Poland is making so many huge games. Um, so the Euro thing, instead of just being German, was like German games is now your games, right? And then that's really crossing over 
Well, and that, that's one of the things that why I, I mentioned kind of earlier. I was like, well, you're making Euro games. And we, we talked before I started recording um, <laughs> about mm-hmm. uh, a couple of uh, uh, games that, that I like a lot come out of China. Um, Peng Yao and then, not uh, to say it wrong, but Du uh, Duong, which is the, the next one I got, I got to play. I mean, the, the, those, as far as I'm concerned, are about as Euro of a Euro game you can get. But I mean, that's by Chinese designers about China and their history. And so uh, uh, yeah. it, it's interesting to try to define something that, but this is why we, I can ask the question again, you know, eight episodes later, because we, we don't have an answer. Um, but you did mention cube pushing. I'm glad you mentioned that mm-hmm. because that is the perfect kind of lead into the next question of well, what are the, I'm going to say stereotypical Euro mechanics of a game. I mean, I'm, I'll start, I'm going to take cube pushing by cube pushing. I'm going to narrow it down a little bit, <laughs> kind of the, the resource management, right? I'm going to do a thing. It's going to get me this resource. I'm going to do another thing. which is going to turn this resource or multiple of this resource into another resource. I'm going to use that one resource, which is going to get me a point. Ha. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean that, that to me, that that's like the purest you know, if you say Euro game like that, that that's what that's what pops in the head. You know, the cube pushing. But, but what else do we have? Well, what else is in there? Well, what what else is in the bag of Euro designer tr- tricks? Well, I feel like I'm always going to answer the questions in a weird way. So, if we circle back to the historic context of a lot of stuff, and one of the big differences between like mass market games and popular European games is uh, mechanical in invention uh, or mechanisms, if you want to call them that, in, in games was something that not only the hobbyists, but even the general public in a European market was more aware of and interested in. So they wanted to see games every year at the like Nuremberg Toy Festival Essen that have an innovative mechanic. And that could still be something simple like stanky rhino on a bunch of folded cards. Um, or it could be something that's uh, you know some new drafting mechanism, whatever that may be. Uh, but the fact that we're kind of looking at it from a mechanical lens instead of uh, how do we simulate you know a means to this this combat belt uh, realistic or the steam was engrossing or this narrative was compelling uh just looking at games through a as a player through a a mechanical lens is something that i think is from that euro school altogether so if we say uh so do you like seven wonders and all of a sudden people go oh yeah and i love sushi go and it's like why did they say that if somebody's talking about ancient civilizations why are they suddenly talking about food Right. And it's because the correlation is that they're both using a drafting card mechanism that goes around the table and that that the fact that the the we're not just talking about these. And, um, hey, let's talk about your favorite food games. And you say, well, I really like uh, seven. Months. Wait a second. I mean, I like Sushi Go. The theme is obviously secondary to what people are actually assuming what sits on the shelves of if you like sushi go that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to like every game that's about sushi but there's a high correlation with the fact you probably like seven wonders as a as a next step version of a drafting game like that and you might look at some things that are maybe i don't know looking at uh what's the difference between uh machi koro and valeria and it's again it's like are either of those euro games eh, who knows um but the mechanical correlation is what people are focused on and i think 
just the fact that the players and the and the the buyers are going like, hey, uh, ring ring, do you have any good deck builders for here uh, in the store? What's a good work replacement? They're talking. They're not saying I want a uh, ancient Rome game that makes me feel like an emperor. They're coming in there and they're asking for things on a mechanical basis, and that that's just probably not what people really were looking at games outside of that lens and we've adopted that and it's cool because i mean that's so much of what drives game design is i thought of a cool way to combine uh this mechanic and that mechanic we look at dune imperium going like all right we've got deck building and worker placement hybridized we got endless winter uh, (laughs) worked on Uh, well and, and and also lost ruins of arnak Right, well. exactly, and and I it's mean, all, just I like because all three of those hit 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 the uh, uh, market in in some way, you know, uh, endless winters Kickstarter, but that I don't know what the same three week period. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all announced in you know relatively, yeah. I mean, it's kind of, kind of the thing. It, it came out as a group, and I think wholesale people are generally really responsive to all three of those titles um, for different reasons. Um, I don't think one particularly fires a different one. They they strike on different things, even though they've all taken that those two mechanics and and put them together in kind of a novel way. Um, yeah, well, and, and I, I think, think um, one I, like. you also not knocked off to two of the uh, other big mechanics that people look at you the worker placement, which mm-hmm. I think is another classic you know Euro style, but in the uh, in the deck building. Now I, I don't know anything about. Um, Arnak. I haven't played it, mm-hmm. uh, but I have played Winter and I have played Dune Imperium, and it is in the. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep coming back to mechanics. It's stuck in my head now, but it's in the kind of tertiary mechanics that they have that makes them different. Because yes, worker placement I would say is the number one mechanic for both of those. Followed by deck building. Well, no, maybe 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 in winter is more deck building than worker placement. Um, but then with Dune, you have a bit of area, a bit of area control mixed in there. And mm-hmm. I don't know what you call the monolith that you're building up in the <laughs> the other corner uh, uh, of the map. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you call that. But there, there's that mechanic going on in winter, mm-hmm. which is different and i can only assume that there's something else in arnak going on uh if from what i've heard is correct there's a little bit of like using you have to use your uh, uh deck building to move yourself around the board or something like that yeah That's multi-use cards that are also vehicles you can use a little plane to fly to areas that only the plane can get to or the jeep gets to and then there's also kind of this big like tech tree track that you're trying to move your pieces up on the side to unlock things oh uh, yeah a tech tree mm-hmm. um yeah. yeah. So it, it's so now we, we've totally gone gone away from the question, but but I, I think that's okay because it, <laughs> yeah. it's it, it's kind of a what we're kind of moving into what, what's making Euro games exciting. Yeah. yeah, and it's kind of that these combinations of these existing mechanics and putting them together in something new. Because I, I don't, I can't think of the last game that uh, I saw that was a pure any mechanic game the last pure worker placement game that came out that was a hit or just pure deck builder that was a hit like it's i'm sure there's something i'm just not thinking of it um there's there's pure examples they might be doing something that's again like a tertiary mechanic might be different whatever else but um 
Yeah, I think some sometimes there's kind of like bits of ideas kind of floating around and uh, they get synthesized into a way that's very digestible or, or just shows it in, in, in clear view. And I think Dominion was a good example of that because you take um, magic and collectible card games and people are in the habit of the idea of building a deck out of things that you acquire uh, in the world, in the metagame. And then and you bring you play those decks off of each other and that kind of probabilistic thinking of how to slim a deck and work with all that and the idea of uh, of you know just basically hey let's take the the idea of going on ebay or going to the store and getting cards and buying them let's let's make part buying the cards part of the game and then you buy the cards right now and you know so the, the rich kid that buys all the expensive magic cards doesn't have a big advantage we just start off with you know five ducats or whatever and you you buy the cards in the game through an economic system and build the deck right there um, and it fits in one box right and so encapsulating that I think was great it really drew a circle around something that was kind of like splattered all over the place and made it this unit deck building and then going all right there's deck builder games but then you can take deck building in greater or lesser form and then plop that into other games to do similar things you know it's it's not just a game it's a mechanic now and it's cool that it pops up and people are used to the uh conventions of it so for instance the idea of what do you do when your deck runs out nobody asks that when they learn a new deck builder they know that you take all your cards from your discard pile and you shuffle them and you draw back up to however many you're supposed to acquire so with maybe some exceptions i'm not sure but certain things yeah there's like a, know, uh, they know uh, what to do aeon's end is famous for you not, not shuffling but yeah yeah that's uh, that, that's why it was a big deal is because you don't shuffle mm-hmm. yeah and uh, endless winters thing is it's not the only game that does this but that uh when you buy a new card the card goes directly into your hand and you can play it on your very next turn uh valetta also um did that which is a euro deck builder which is really cool and um, there's some other ones, uh, you know, and just trying to look at different little spins on where do these things go. So the usual, the old idea of the the headwind or the the delay system, where uh, instead of just buying the most powerful card that just turns into an immediate feedback loop, you have to put it in your discard pile, and you got to wait for that to come back, and you got to not know when it's going to come back into your hand. And then they start short circuiting that, like, oh, when you buy this card, you can put it on top of your deck, right? So you can get to it a little bit faster. Maybe then you've got a draw action, then you can draw it and then it gets into your hand. So you can short circuit to make these things happen. But by default, they kind of had like bot cards going to the discard and there's a delay between getting them into play with some uncertainty. That's circling back to the other conversation about the uh, information horizon is you don't know when you're going to get that card back after it goes into your discard pile, gets shuffled, it then becomes your draw deck and then actually becomes activated. So you you know probabilistically when it's going to happen, but you can't... plan on it like you know to the hour so uh yes i think it's it's interesting like that that basically you get these things but if we look at the roots of any like novel mechanic like deck building it's like could dominion have existed without Yu-Gi-Oh and pokemon and magic and all these other games where you acquire those things and could could magic the gathering have existed without um collectible trading cards just like baseball cards and marvel superhero cards or whatever might not have had a uh 
game attached to them, right? But the idea of getting these things in packs, not knowing what you're getting, and then, you know, having more or lesser valuable things in, in a distribution like that, gamifying it in a good way that's portable. All these things make sense if you kind of like follow their roots where they come from. And I think even if we looked at uh, innovative games like, uh, I say, Arnak or something like that, it's very elegant game. I have played it and it's like not a lot of nonsense. And for innovation's sake, it's, uh, yeah, they, they hybridized a few a few things there. Uh, maybe one of the cool little spins on it is there's a market of cards and there's this little round divider and it qualitatively chooses the type of cards in a uh, how many of what type are into display for every round. So at first there's very few of this kind and there's a bunch of this kind. And as the round progresses, everything to the say left of the stick is gonna be of this different type of quality, which then into your deck immediately where the other ones follow the usual deck building sort of uh, metric. And so it's like, there's kind of a cool shifting of the available card market in that game um, where you look at something like uh, River of Cards or Ascension or these other ones where you know the cards just keep kind of coming down the pike from the same source deck this is changing the amount of those cards that goes across that mechanic i don't think it's talked about very much arguably it might be one of the more innovative parts of that game more so than just the idea of deck building and worker placement uh for, for pe people well, watching listening we if you haven't we, we've been having a bit of an issue with some of our, our connection um so i'm gonna move us a move us along just a little bit to kind of get to the because you're all you're all here to know what we have to say about cryo. We know this, but we're making you wait for it. But so I do want to kind of jump into because we, we've spent a lot of time kind of talking about some things that makes a quote unquote good euro, and it's kind of that. I, for people watching or listening, I put good in air quotes, but this kind of combination of things and making it in, into so something somewhat new. But so my my quick question for you, just a quick one. Uh, these, these <laughs> so we've talked about how we often look at euro games by mechanic you know mm -hmm. oh this is a great new deck builder it's a great new whatever so yep. knowing that we do that which primary mechanic is your favorite when you're going into because I, I as i was thinking about this for the future i, I think worker placement for me uh, i find that man i find that very satisfying you put your guy out there or your dude or your whatever your monster whatever and you just get a whole bunch of junk back, which is now we're into cube pushing, right? But then I'm going to use all that junk to do something and it's going to utterly destroy you or build something for me. I just, boy, that is super, super satisfying to me. So I, th I think I think that that's my number one. And, and then for my, my least favorite one, I think is that Dominion style deck build. Mm. Um, wow. I like deck building. It, it's, I've been working on this in my head for a long time because I really like the game Clank. I yeah, really, Clank's fantastic. I really like Clank. And I like a, a lesser known one called Battle for Greyport. And I realize why it is I like those so much is that there's very few cards that you're pulling that's just about buying stuff. <laughs> like, yep. you know, I'm never going to have a hand unless I really try where it's like I got all money and all I'm going to do is buy something because to me that's boring. Yeah, but, you, know, okay. you have like sure. the uh, clank or whatever where, okay, this card, I'm not buying anything with it, but I'm going to move. Where this one yeah. is, let me go fight something. Even though, really, the fighting of the thing is just me buying the reward with a different colored card. Um, <laughs> I guess so. But you know, but, but so, so 
so deck building is kind of the back end for me. Worker placements, my, my, my top, top. If, if I'm, if I'm going to go into a store and say, show me your worker placements, I don't care about your deck builders. That, 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 that's for me. <laughs> How about you? Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, um, I do. I mean, I like mechanics a lot and I think about them a lot. And, uh, you know, like Jeff Engelstein's uh, big book on mechanics is great. And the BGG database has opened up uh, a lot of mechanics from that, but it still has other things um, in the BGG database of what is a mechanic and what isn't. And they didn't, uh, they didn't remove things, they added things. So there's a bunch of kind of old school stuff that was just kind of thrown in there that may or may not actually be a mechanic. Um, and then some sticklers, sticklers will say that uh, a lot of things that are, are they a mechanic or are they a goal? Like is set collection a mechanic uh, or is it a goal that you're trying to achieve? Um, because whatever else. And so I kind of don't like uh, recipe fulfillment or contract fulfillment very much if it is an ender. And I'm going to have that big asterisk right there. Um, and I'll come back and tell you what I do like in a minute, but <laughs> I like a lot of mechanics. But the, my beef with, with that is uh, if, if you're doing a bunch of stuff in a game and it's a feedback loop and it's a nonlinear system and all this thing happens where you accumulate all this stuff and then you just uh, turn in this contract and you pay all this stuff and then all you have in exchange is points and then you don't have any more stuff. I don't think that's very compelling um and it can lead to like kind of a rinse repeat sort of a thing so i prefer it if the things that you are buying uh do something else for you like maybe what you're talking about if i buy cards with money that just get me more money to buy more cards with money that feels weird but if i just buy victory points uh, also a dominion thing that doesn't really feel that much that fun uh in the sense that if you started doing that early it's not an interesting thing to draw the victory point cards so you don't do anything what's fun about that in dominion is the fact that you're knowingly cluttering up your deck and junking it up and it's going to slow you down and other players are going to feel like they might be able to nip at your heels and you kind of watch for who's going to pivot and go green as they say in that game um so i don't really like uh, you know recipe fulfillment contract fulfillment if it's just an ender and if they want to like, you know, try to be sneaky about it, be like, here, you get six points and there's a little icon in the corner. And then if you get a set of four different icons, you get another six points at the end. They're just making you diversify or specialize in which contracts you are fulfilling, which will then further funnel you down one direction or another or, you know, force you to not drill down and diversify. So um when i as a developer if i if i come across i see a lot of contract fulfillment games like well, here's a great front-end mechanism there's a rondelle all this other stuff's going on I'm like awesome what do you do you get stuff cool what do you do with it you fulfill contracts and that might be beating up a monster like paying it five swords and a shield or something right or it might be appeasing some king or whatever else um it just doesn't uh resonate right with me i feel like you should buy something that does something later on like i'm going to take the resources and buy this wall and i'm going to put this wall up so when the invaders come later they don't blow up my stuff that is actually worth the points right and so you're you're doing something like that with the with the feedback loop instead of just you know being an ender or just being buying money with money um so that'd be something i'll, I'll point out that i it's not my least favorite mechanic by any means, but is one as a developer that I encounter and want to change the most. Um, 
Whereas other stuff like here's a game where you literally throw something at somebody and if they get hit, they lose. Uh, I mean, that's clearly a worse mechanic, uh, but I don't work on games that have stuff like that because they don't even make it. I, I just say call somebody else. So um, in in the Euro arena, though, we do see things like a lot of contract fulfillment, recipe fulfillment stuff. I'm going to circle back to what I do like, though is uh speculation and i think commodity speculation is hyperlinked on bgg as a mechanic and usually people think of commodity speculation as an actual stock holding game like an 18xx where there's actually commodities you hold shares in that and you turn them around and they go up and down based on what people do or what events happen in the game and that is just too literal of a definition for me um and i think we could take something like uh, speculation in the sense of uh, that sort of uncertainty that can come from, like, if you're playing uh, Carcassonne, let's look at that and go, okay, if I start building this this city, it's going to be worth a bunch of points. If I can close off every end of it, and I'm going to put my meeple on there, and I'm also going to put a meeple on this cloister over here and hope I could surround that. And I also want this guy on this farm and I'm running out of meeples and the deck's getting lower and I'm not, not sure if you're going to end. And I'm not sure if you're going to come over and put a farmer on the same farm as me. And you're feeling the, the risks that you're taking posed against what the other players are going to let you maybe get away with. Even if they see what you're doing, they're also hoping to pull the tile that's going to connect the farms or put the road right next to the end of that castle to make it hard for you to close off where you're going, do I need to put a second meeple in my castle? So that way, if somebody does build in, they're only, they're not going to share the points with me. Right. And so you're, you're dealing with these, this layer of uncertainty in a game as simple as what do you do in, in uh, Carcassonne and say, Oh, it's a, it's a tile placement game. You, you connect tiles that match on the side and then you, you, uh, you get points if you finish them. And if we just looked at it that way, it's, it's, there's so much more going on in that game than than that uh, the, the player meta and the how mean that game can be in a fun way and then also just on a soft incentive sort of way just the fact that you make a big beautiful map and you have the meeples come from that game there's a lot of reasons to like that game but what i think could make it infinitely re replayable for me is not that man i really need some new tiles so the road maybe can go some crazy way like spaghetti i don't really need that what i need is to play against people and see what tiles i get see what they get and see uh, if you think you can place bets in a sense that you're going to be able to finish your stuff and slow them down in a way that's going to get you more, more points than the other players. And that sort of speculation um, is what makes games fun for me. And it's it's in very, to me, Carcassonne's very, uh, it's a very interactive game, even though uh, rarely can you do something in that game, maybe with a dragon or whatever, where you can actually affect somebody's thing or kick them out of their castle and you take it over. A lot of it's going to be indirect pressures. You're making things harder for them to complete or you're putting pressure on them in some way. I like that probabilistic, like fuzzy logic sort of thing about what you think might happen. And that could be input randomness. Like we look at another uh, Euro game that uh, is like Quacks of Quedlinburg. It's all about the output randomness. Are you going to bust or not? But you're also pushing your, your, your luck with that. It's a great push your luck game. But if you bust, you don't just lose a turn, lose everything. You just simply have to choose. You get a choice, an interesting choice of do I take the points or do I take the stuff and build my bag? And you're speculating on uh, it's the third round. I think I should get more stuff so that my odds get better for pulling better stuff later. 
or if it's the sixth round, you go, hmm, I, I'm only going to put this good token in there and then maybe pull it out one or two more times or no more times by the time the game ends. Should I just bite the bolt and take the points, right? You so know, one of the things that, that I, I like uh, about that kind of mm -hmm. looking at speculation in, in that way is for me, it's the human element in that. And it's that, like you talk about with, with, with Carcassonne, like, I know what you're doing. I can look <laughs> at the board. I know, and you know what I'm doing. It's a there's a wonderful play called The Line in Winter, where the younger son he says, "I know, you know, I know, I know, you know, I know." She knows that we know, and he and he knows that she knows. You know this whole thing, and to me that that's kind <laughs> yeah. of the 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 fun thing about that. It's when do I I have to speculate on you? And yeah. when are you going to try to do something? And that to me is where that becomes interesting more than like a stock market style game. Cause you know, speculating, you know, the, the, it's going to go up or down. But if mm -hmm. I am now I'm playing the game, sure. But I'm also trying to play Johnny, but I can't really play Johnny because Johnny knows that I'm playing him. And so he's <laughs> going to try to play me playing him. And it becomes this kind of really, we don't know anything, but we think we do, which to me makes it just so, so much fun when you're just trying to kind of make that 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 unknowable speculation to me is what makes those fun because there's no way I know when you're going to break and there's no way you know when I'm going to break and just try to close my thing off or keep pushing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a hugely interactive medium like that, and that's that's all. I mean, we could argue that uh, Quacks doesn't isn't very interactive. I mean, there's a little bit of like who's going to get the bonus die, but the um, the speculation there is you're kind of like trying to push the clock of the game and you're also looking at the margins of what the other players because they're setting the bar uh, regardless if you're getting rat tails or not so if, if you're way ahead of me in points I'm it might force me to in a case where I, do I take the points or do I take the stuff I might need to actually just take the points to close that gap because I think you're going to try to maintain that margin when you take the choice to take the whatever you're going to take right so those those indirect pressures uh even though somebody could say this is multiplayer solitaire it's like eh, yeah i guess it's kind of close but it's not <laughs> and uh i think there's a lot of things if, if we reduce games enough and and put purposely put enough blinders on we could say that a lot of these zero games could fall into this multiplayer solitaire efficiency puzzle stuff um but if you play them with a bigger perspective of the table and the setting what you're doing there's often subtleties that make the game either more enjoyable or even more strategic or or add tactics or or other things to it that create a lot of spice there versus simply taking the most efficient thing you can do um, in a vacuum i think we have the answer for you i think the answer is going to be carcassonne but We'll see. So the next question is, it's, it's another, or uh, so the next one is, what's the one Euro game that if you needed somebody to understand who you are as a, as a gamer, again, can't be one of your own games, what Euro game would you introduce? I've, I've been thinking real hard on this, and I'm going to go with one that's more of a hybrid. I'm going to go with Dwellings of Eldervale. Okay. Which is... It's a super hybrid because you got you got the area control and you got the dice chucking combat. But for me, that's why that's the one I pick because it has that dice chucking combat in there. It has a 
a pretty rich theme that I think they do have done a pretty good job of, of realizing in there. And again, I always say this, you can pry those sound making bases for those minis out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> I yeah. cannot take those from me ever. Um, <laughs> but it's also worker placement. Yeah. And it has the probably my second favorite popular Euro mechanic, Tableau Building, which mm-hmm. I really enjoy. But then it combines them. You build a Tableau and then when you bring these workers back, you're using them again on this tableau that you're building. And so you're creating your own little worker placement board, which there's nothing more satisfying than in that game to me at the end when I'm playing and I'm sitting there like, damn, I don't know where to put my guys because I have so many cool, great choices that I've built for myself back at my, uh, uh, back at my player board. So for me, that, that that's the one for me. I, I don't know that I would say, it's my favorite Euro game. It's definitely up there. But that, to me, that's the one that's like, okay, if you, you, if you know me, you understand why I like this game. How about you? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's definitely a good one. It's, uh, it's cool seeing um, Luke and Peter developing it all, all those years from when I first saw it. It was just, you know, I had some extra D&D minis and it was all just, you know, construction paper and printed out parts and all that and then it got to that point where it was like pre-production and they had 3d printed stuff uh yeah it came a long way and it's got his signature thing in there which is that the you know you you don't just place the meeples and then eventually everybody takes them back in this boring cleanup phase he gamified the retraction right and then you get the other stuff and the important part of that thing is the asynchronous uh ebb and flow of the worker placement spots where a lot of the old ones was just like the board's empty and then people start filling it up and you have to bid hard for first or second in player order and then it just compacts until there's dregs and then you i don't know you have to take everything back and you gotta feed your people and you're like "Eh," and then you go and do it again uh the continuous play of this idea of like i really want to bring my guys back or i have to bring them back but i know that's going to open the board up for you who's still going to stay in a little bit longer and you can try to get out of phase with players again that's one of those interaction points that uh and then you really, start to really try cool. to outthink each other and i'm yep. gonna pull i'm gonna i'm not gonna put all my guys out i'm gonna pull them back now right I, mean, I put two out pull them back what are you gonna do yeah um mm-hmm. you know which exactly. which on the surface it seems like that's a that's a poor play because you haven't used them all going out and you haven't used them all coming back. Right. And, you know, it seems like that's not efficient, but when you start thinking about what everyone else around the table is doing, maybe it is because maybe Johnny, you're pushing the end of the game. And so I need to get something now, or, you know, maybe I see if you go down, you can, you're going to come wipe me out or you're going to move the monster to, you know, come wipe me out. So I better pull back now. And so it's, it's that kind of indirect, um, interaction is what i'm just calling it you know it's not mm-hmm. we're actually doing anything to each other but because of what you're doing it's affecting how i'm playing and doing something that on paper might seem like that's not uh, the most efficient yeah yeah exactly and, and the fact that i mean you nailed something right there that there's like a fuzzy logic to is this the most efficient thing bang for my buck in a vacuum versus if I look at your workers and I think you're going to stay in as long as you can, and the longer I stay in, the more compacted the games, the board's going to be, and I will have to take worse and worse actions, whatever it may be. Or if I retract now, basically sandbag a little bit, and I know you can't stay in that much longer, you're going to run out of workers. You'll have to back out 
and then I'll come to a completely open board and I'll have first dibs on what's there. And right. So if you're looking at the, the not just like a move counter move, but a, you know, phase counter phase sort of uh, play like that, it's again, it's really compelling and the fuzzy logic is there and the human elements there and those, uh, in, you know, there's nothing saying you can't talk about it. Yep. I'm going to pull back or I'm going to stay in. Yeah. Good luck. I know I'm going to stay in. I'm going to, I'm going to use every last worker, right? You can try to make credible your threats by, by showing and doing those things too. So um, yeah, anything like that, I think is a good vehicle to press that stuff and not to really downplay it. Um, to me, those are some of the most important things besides the other stuff. Uh, I guess, yeah, I really like uh, Carcassonics. I suppose if, yeah, the it would have to be the big box because I don't want to just, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't live with just the... All for 47,000 expansions? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I have most of them. I mean, I have all standalones and all that. It's it's really like there's, I don't know, six editions of the big box. And the first edition they did that, they, they put in some stuff there that um, is kind of mostly favorite. I mean, I'm not in love with the dragon, but it's a cute meeple. But... Um, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there enough to mix it up and keep it dynamic and you can kind of um, push and pull on different parts of the game with with all that extra content and uh, just enough to make it good. I tried to kitchen sink this about five years ago where I took all the expansions at once and played. We, we got five or six hours in and got halfway through one of my two giant bags of, of hundreds of tiles and just tapped out and it was every time some tile popped up we had to look through all these different pamphlets which promo did that come from what's uh okay oh fleas oh there's fleas everywhere um <laughs> it's kind of a mess but uh in in the right combination i think that makes a good experience and then um even the module nature of some of the stuff i work on as a developer or guest designer on some of these games kind of makes me look at if you take a real simple game like carcassonne Alhambra, I don't know, Kingdom Builder, some of these other ones that fundamentally do something very, very simple. There's not a lot of exceptions to the rules. And you can add all these modules in like infinite amounts of them that turn those rules kind of on, on themselves in a different way, um, bring, bring fresh experiences out of it. And people kind of see, you can explain, oh, what does this little thing do? Oh, it's just like the other ones, except for it does this cool little thing. And you go, ooh, neat, I want to play with that. And really, they, they think about the systems level. They know the game, how it works, all the moving parts, and why that would make that thing more compelling. Like something simple like the inns in Carcassonne, it's like it makes the roads uh, with the inns on them like worth twice as many points. Because normally the heuristic is, roads aren't worth as much as castles. So you kind of do them as a second, you know, you define areas and you just don't like bank on them as much. But here it's like, oh, this is putting them in par with castles. I can make a really long road and uh, have it be worth a significant amount of points. With a caveat, it's not worth any points at the end of the game where normally roads are immune to the end game being cut in half um, scoring. So it's it's the kind of thing where you explain that to somebody right away and they go, oh, cool. Yeah, I want to play with that. That'd be fun to have some valuable roads in the game where roads aren't usually that valuable. And boom, you've got a great little module and it's made every time you pull on those tiles a little more exciting. And every subsequent road that you pull is a little bit more exciting because you pulled that in tile earlier and you're going to try to build off of it and hope somebody doesn't say, oh, I'm going to shut that down and end your road and whatever that may happen. Right. So, and then you uh, throw them out of your house. <laughs> yeah, so right, I think so, Carcassonne uh, does it. And it's got the meeple too. I mean, I just love like the meeple, right? Yeah, so the, 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 for, for anybody uh, uh, who, who doesn't know, watching or listening, 
Carcassonne is, is the game that coined the term the meeple. It is my understanding that they, they existed out there, but that was the first time it was called a meeple. Is that accurate? Yeah, they were called followers in the original Carcassonne and people uh, shorthanded. I think it was that they were calling my people. Uh, and it was just kind of a slang, my people, my you know, peeps, meeps. And all of a sudden it was meeple since it had this thing. And eventually the publisher adopted the, the term meeple and it's just become, you know, shorthand for any kind of cookie cutter wooden, wooden component out there. But the, like, you know, you just think of like anybody who's meeple this, meeple that. Most likely it's that that particular shape you know the little <laughs> you know what i'm talking about the little star shape yeah, little, yeah it's, 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 yeah. it's just it like almost looks like the uh, leonardo da vinci but uh, uh round <laughs> edges yeah you know so yeah exactly so that's that's become uh the meeple and and the most iconic shape is from the original carcassonne more so than um wooden figures or cubes and things from you know previous titles all right so we're we're, we're entering into, into the home stretch but for the first time ever i have to stop i have to do a sponsor bump because we oh. have a sponsor for Boards and Brews, which is the online gaming platform called Sovereignty. Now, Johnny, now for anyone who doesn't know Johnny, you know that he is not the biggest fan of tabletop simulators and tabletopias and playing games on that. It's not his favorite. Not favorite. He's good at it. Because he uses it. It's a tool of his trade. It's not his favorite. Sovereignty is a new one where it puts you in a 3D environment where you have your own little avatar. It's you. And there's very, very few controls. The idea is it's made for people who don't like playing those things. They don't want to hit the keyboard to move around. you got a slider that literally leans you over the table. You can zoom in. You can zoom out. You can click on something to look at it. That's it. And it does all the scoring for you. And... I've actually really been enjoying it. This was long before they started sponsoring us. I really uh, I enjoy it. They have not a ton of games on there, but they have games like Sushi Go on there, Isle of Cats, Planet Unknown, and uh, Mouse Cheese Cat Cucumber, which I challenge you to come find a more interesting, intriguing name in a game. <laughs> right? uh, all those things on there. And um, now, Johnny, I know you don't know about it because we already talked about it. But say something nice about sovereignty from what I just said, because this is a very important sponsor bump. I think that sounds cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I feel like playing tabletop simulators, like trying to play uh, board games underwater with chopsticks. It's not very fun. <laughs> so uh, an alternative where um, maybe the things feel natural. Uh, and even like you mentioned, the leaning in and all that uh, would be really welcome. So I think that's cool, especially if... Uh, you know, there's more and more games to be able to play it on there. And maybe, I don't know if it's available now, but uh, eventually uh, designers and things can upload prototypes and use it as a playtesting tool. That's, that'd be really cool too. Thank you for entertaining our first ever sponsor bump. Everybody <laughs> down in the description of the podcast or the video, you will find a link to uh, Sovereignty where you can download it. It is free just to download. And there's also a link to their Discord where they actually host weekly game nights where they teach you games and all kinds of fun stuff like that. But here we are. Today we're talking about Cryo, which is a relatively new Euro game that uh, came out from uh, Z-Man. I think it delivered, I don't know, a month, six weeks ago, something like that. And uh, from Tom Jolly and Luke Laurie, who are both local designers to Johnny and I out here in, the, in California. Luke was one of the designers on, or I guess the, the designer, name designer on Dwellings of Eldervale. And it is a game in which you are on a colony ship 
and somebody, probably Johnny, has sabotaged it. It has crashed on the planet. The ship is broken up into four different parts, and you're sending it, and it's a frozen planet. And when the sun goes down, anything on the planet is going to die, and you are using your drones and a worker placement, somewhat tableau building uh, uh, mechanics to get your people underground and then whoever has the most points at the end of the game points are going to be scored by multi-use cards that you're putting out there which create missions which all kinds of different varieties of in-game scoring you're going to get or by an area uh, area control mechanic down in the caverns underground where whoever has the most of their people down there is going to get the points for that particular cavern and then of course lots of good resource management and turning this resource into another resource. And it does also do the same thing that you have in Dwellings of Eldervale, where you can go out and get things that you can plug into your tableau. So when you bring your workers back, what my workers are doing when they come back are different than what Johnny's workers are doing when they come back because of how I and he have built our uh, uh, little uh, player boards that we have. Now, uh, I've gotten the chance to play it at two players, three players, and... uh, Excuse me, two players, four players, and solo. And Johnny actually had the pleasure of playing it back in development. And then it's going to no, come back to. No, I didn't it. actually. I, oh, I not saw, development? Wasn't it? I, I, I missed it. I, was, I worked, I uh, play tested Whistle Mountain and other ones. Uh, I just missed that. I, I saw pictures of it often, like um, previous to that. So I only knew of it, but this was actually a, a fresh game for me from luke's catalog when it finally came out so it's my my timing in it were just about a year off from each other oh oh so 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 i didn't because because this is actually um i guess one of luke's older designs it's a long time coming for this one right Um, it took a while yeah yeah which is interesting that this one came before dwellings and his brain space (laughs) i believe so it's interesting even though cryos after dwellings i can see stuff in dwellings like oh you pulled that from over here here in cryo but uh yeah so what are your what are your your, your thoughts on it what do you think i i, I thought it was great I, I uh i think the presentation um i've even i not a super big like, comic book geek or anything like that but i do enjoy some of the old like 1970s uh heavy metal magazine sort of stuff and all that and the mobius style artwork that was used in there as soon as i saw pictures of it coming out like that compared to what i saw was just you know prototype uh, pictures from before it's like whoa they're going for a mobius look whoever was on the team decided that great idea because uh it's really compelling it's a very fresh look it's not just like you know the big old black you know hex with you know planets and you know star destroyer looking things flying around it just has a different feel and the box cover is like this prelude to what you play just like you know the ship is like you know burning up heading down to the, towards this planet yeah, how anybody survives that i do not <laughs> understand hey they're those little cryopod thingies you know it's like being stuck in a refrigerator during a you know atomic bomb of course I don't know, but yeah, um, I've seen movies that, that that'll keep exactly. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> Just hold the door and from the inside, it's easy. I've done it. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so, you know, you open up the board and here's like chunks of the ship everywhere. And you're just got like half your teammates are frozen and these little barrels all over the spots and junks everywhere. And you're just sending out these little drones with little, you know, to go pick up stuff. Yeah, for you you know, and-, and I'm sure you still get them from Amazon, <laughs> even in the future. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they repurpose Amazon drones to uh, go pick up all the junk on this uh, soon-to-be frozen planet and, uh, you know, try to escape in these caverns. So I think the overall, like, 
I wouldn't say it's the most crazy thematic game out there or anything, but the the little vignette of what you're doing in this setting is pretty interesting. That's just like you've got this one day of of you know any sort of available temperature and you got to go down where it's warm near the thermal vents and survive the night and it doesn't really tell what happens out there you don't build a civilization or anything else i mean presumably you can sustain or whatever else but it's it's just so you, you clearly die on day two i mean that's clearly <laughs> yeah. what happens <laughs> yeah yeah and then the vents fire up and every you know uh, it's like hanging out in the exhaust port but uh, mechanically it's i mean it's very straightforward very 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 clean design where it's uh you're putting out workers and uh what's neat about it is there's kind of like uh you put your worker down and it's connected to a variety of nodes and you could pick the different actions that are on these nodes and it's, a lot of it's picking up a little component you can either take it for the resource now or plug it into your player board and then generate that resource or use it as part of an equation in your player board to further take that resource and turn it into a different resource or do something with it and um nice little tweak in there and notice too is some actions have these little dots on them and that's the number of times you can take that action when you place a unit there and i thought that was a really nice touch to not think oh i wanted to turn this thing into this other thing i'd have to go there one two three times and do that transaction or the other problems if it's just open-ended uh i'll just do this once per game when i have all of it and trade all of it both of those don't work very well sometimes in games and this was really cool to have like when you go there, you can do this thing up to three times. And there's a very clear way to tell that you can do that, um, which was really welcome. It was really cool. Yeah, I think so it's I a really strong, a strong graphic design. It's You yeah. look at the board yeah. and the, uh, the setup is quick. Um, mm -hmm. there's, there's not, I mean, once you've organized it, the setup, setup is pretty quick. Yeah, there's not cool. a ton of times that you're going back and looking at the books like, what does this do? I don't know. What does yeah. that do? Um, yeah. very, very clean. Super clean. And then they also did some nice things. Um, you know, we talked about like accessibility, like trying to use, you know, cubes of colors that are good for, uh, you know, all sorts of colorblindness. And they went the extra mile here for two reasons. It's the accessibility is great, but the they're just coolers. Like the pink gems have a frosted finish on them. And so it's like translucent frosted. And then you've got the bio cubes and they're marbled green and brown. Yeah, green, yellowish, <laughs> green, gold. And yeah. Yeah, and then the metal technology ones are like a swirled marbled, um, you know, dark, silvery, you know, and black sort of a thing. And then uh, then you've got a translucent one with glitter in it, which is the wild resource. The, and uh, so it's just like, those are awesome because they look like fun little candies or whatever else, but they're also really great for accessibility. And I saw that there's... I don't know. You you can do both and make your game just fundamentally better for everybody when you pay attention to details like that. And again, whoever worked on the thematic parts with the art direction and then the product um, design on that was just so cool. And one other little thing is there's one spot where you can put any number of workers. The rest of them are limited. And that one spot, you put your workers there and then other players can go there as well. And it turns out that the little spaceships are like poker chips. They're made perfectly where they stack like on top of each other so you can have this little stack of things without being like oh we need to make this one spot huge just in case six people you know serial put their their workers on the same spot they they just land on each other and it's just like oh such a great idea and even when you retract your workers you can hold them in your hand and go click 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 and kind of dispense them up into your hand and then plop 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 onto their perfect little fittings on your board um so so many little things like that were thought of uh in that game that made sets there's bigger caverns and smaller caverns instead of saying take six from deck a and six from deck b and then put them into deck a or deck b spots no it's like 
this uh, use a coaster. This big thing fits where the big thing is. Fill up all the big things. And then the smaller one, fill up all the smaller things with the small ones. And that's it. So even setup is uh, sped up through processes like that that make things so much easier to, to handle. The final chip that you pull that says the end game trigger is like three times the size of the rest yeah. of the chip. So you know it's the big important one. So they use size to emphasize something. So all around, I was really, really impressed with the product design and the real simplicity and elegance um, that the whole thing has. The, the, the other thing that, that I re really really did dig about it and the more i think about it, the more i like is the so in the game you have uh cars that, that, that you're drawing and on the cards are some kind of a robot machine whatever mm -hmm. but each each one of those has three different uses yeah and you can either make it a ship which is going to take your cryopods down under under, under the planet you can put it as a, as a power up which is permanently going to boost your your abilities uh the most popular one when we last played was the one that lets you move if the cryopod storage blows up, you can move your one cryopod over one space. And that's mm -hmm. something else I would need to bring up in a second is about the blowing stuff up. Or you can take it and turn it into in-game scoring conditions. Yep. And it's not hard to get more cards, but you have to make a choice and go do it. You mm -hmm. have to go buy more cards. You're going to start yep. with three and maybe you could win, win the game with only having three cards. I don't know. But you have to take time to go buy those cards. And they've gone one step further when you're getting the cards because you can get up to three cards if you want. Mm -hmm. But before you do that, you have to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw one and play two. Right. You have to decide before you do anything. And it just, it adds, it, it seems pedantic and silly of me to say, but it adds attention. It's an incredible tension. As I'm like, okay, I need something, but I also need stuff out. I don't want to come back here again. And you having to kind of make that choice is very, very, very clever. And there's enough different types of machines you can get to where it's interesting. You don't know what people are going to have, but it's not overwhelming. I think there's maybe 10 different types of, of robot. I think there's eight, and then they each do three distinct things. Like, you know, yeah, or maybe, yeah. amount of passengers. Yeah, you're right. It's eight. And, it's eight because there's four and, sections uh, of the ship. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I think they borrowed a little bit. I don't know if they're influenced by the Grania or not, but it's kind of a similar idea where, you know, with that game, it's like, you know, you tuck them in here as a wheelbarrow, you tuck them down there as a, a, an ability change, you can tuck them here to do something else. But there's kind of those three, or maybe Glory to Rome or something, um, three different uses for, for doing that. And then they also folded the idea of what you just mentioned, which is the draw card icon is also play a card icon. So whenever you get that ability, it is either draw or play a card. So you're always kind of, um, limited by that same thing and Lagrania did the same thing you see a card icon it's like cool what's that mean it means i could take a card if i want or i can play one i've already got and you need to self-manage that thing there's no just at the end of your turn draw back to x amount or cards aren't just given out in that game you need to go get them but there's things about them that are reliable so every card can be used as a vehicle so if you really need hard press to get a vehicle you know i think the minimum capacity is like i don't know three three uh, is on there, there there's a uh one of them that's only two but okay. it can go further cheaper right 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 yeah, yeah so there's a yeah so there's like you know i think it's two to four and most yeah. of them are three that kind of a deal so it's um you get a sense of you know why, why you might be doing something yeah there's yeah really really cool i know some people are saying oh there's not enough cards for variety but if you looked at the variety of uses in context in a relatively short game uh 
there's a lot of mileage you're going to get out of those cards. And you can also, uh, if your play style isn't really excited about the cards for that reason, there's a lot of other things you can do. You can build your engine right on your board with, with tokens and things and just strictly use the cards just as transports and be like, I don't care. I just need like three of them in order to get all my guys there. I'll just plug them all in and just yeah, one of my favorite things to do is um, to, to take it and build up those spaces because there's also space on the board where you can put your cryopods out there. Mm -hmm. And when you pull your people back, you're getting extra resources. And there's my, my favorite card in the whole game is there's one where the special end game mission is called Memorial, which is you're going to leave them out there to freeze and they're going to be a memorial for the future, but now they're worth points. So you can leave them out there and all the way through the very end of the game, you're just farming them to have them give you the resources you need to get everybody else down there. And it just, um, very, it's very, it's very clever and stuff like that. Little touches like that kind of hit on the theme of the game, which kind of starts bringing it together because usually if you don't have that card you're going to leave them out there to the last minute you're going to pull them all back you're going to sell all the junk off of your board because you don't need it anymore to get it to go down under the cavern and the only other thing that that i didn't mention in the beginning is as you're playing through every time someone brings their stuff back you pull you flip up a, or you pull a token which might be a resource or part of the ship blows up and you get to pick what's going to be blowing up i mean to, to a point you get to, you can see that it will blow up if you take that token and if a place blows up you are killing their people <laughs> you just take them out of the game and so there there's an element again that's the theme but it makes it kind of a mean euro game if you choose to play that way i'll say yeah. all the people i've played with we've actually done very little of that because we're like ah I'd rather go get a resource over here, <laughs> but it's interesting because you could play that way. In fact, the next, I was talking with people that we mentioned earlier, Peter Vaughn and Don mm -hmm. Gilstrap, another local designer, where we want to play a game where we specifically are going to try it and be as mean as possible and mm -hmm. just see how that goes. Like, oh, no, I can blow something. I'm going to blow it up. But it's an interesting thing in the game. And I don't know how I feel about that being in there. I don't know that it needs to be in there. I, I, I'm not sure about it. What, what, what do you think about that, that bit? I think the caveat is, is that they load you up with everybody else in these areas and they blow up in a certain chain reaction. So there's a telegraphing as the token comes out and you see it's at risk and you've got a number, a bit of time to react to it. And then you see what's at stake and that's going to be not all the units in the whole ship area. It's going to be one of the three possible posit blows up and it's everybody has an equal amount at the start of the game. So if I could just be mean and blow myself up to blow you up, but that's not good. It's not going to win you the game. So you need to get your guys out of there and see the blow up thing there. And then you just, you just know, like you're, you're a sitting duck at that point. Like somebody's going to blow me up because I'm, they're not there anymore. And there's a blow up token there. So, uh, so I actually think it's cool if, if again, if it's the result of speculation and think, is he busy enough and need to get, he needs to withdraw and do this thing or he's got his ships and he's still putting them out there. And I got this. Do I want to, do I want to stop what I'm doing and go pick up that one or just let it go? That's the real choice. It's not a matter of um, just letting luck decide if I'm going to win or lose the game because it will or won't blow up. It's, it's also an interesting way to mess up what you're doing just by the virtue of that coming out there. Is that going to throw you off your game in bits? I mean, yeah, luckily you have, kind of enough of those you know like playing the old game lemmings or something like that there's kind of enough of them to 
you you can lose a significant number of them and still win the game. And you know, I think not to talk about my own stuff, but like Coloma, you can you can lose a significant number of Cowboys and still win the game. It doesn't mean the guy who's lost the shootout the most as a full graveyard is going to lose. And so I think there's there's things on both sides of that where it's like there's enough telegraphing and foresight and speculation. It's not completely random and it's reasons why people would do things one way or another and social pressures and then finally even if it does happen it's not just pure game over for you right um, and, you know I, I will say the the only time i have not lost a single cryopod i did not win the game <laughs> sure um Makes you sense. know it, it's almost a uh, uh by my becoming obsessed with not losing any of them i lost everything you know to be dramatic about it right uh, you know, lost the whole thing. So I, I do. It's a very interesting uh, mechanic um, that, that's out there. I'll be curious as you know, it gets played more and more. How many people are actively taking it and using it over a resource? But of course, we can't be all sunshine and rainbows here. Um, so talk about some of the stuff that you know, my my my, my quibbles. And you can agree or disagree. And uh, the first one is there's one part of the setup that drives me bananas. And that is the because what one of the things you also do is you cover up some of the nodes, uh, worker placement nodes. Uh, the right, conceit right. is that they're damaged based on the number of players, mm -hmm. and they have Greek letters on the board. And you draw little tiles and you flip them over, and they have Greek letters on them or not. And that's how you know where to place them. Yeah. And for the life of me, I swear it takes me twenty minutes to find those dumb things <laughs> and orient them the right way to know yeah. where they are. And I don't, I don't even do it. I just throw out however many mm. supposed to be randomly and I move on. <laughs> I know that's a me thing. Oh my gosh. It drives me up the wall. I'm like, why is this so hard? Just give me numbers. Yeah. I wonder if they chose that because if they had to use numbers, uh, people in game would see the revealed ones that weren't covered up and wonder if the numbers had any qualitative effect on it. Like if this spot number three was, is this only in a three player game? Does it happen three uh -huh. times? Right. Does it cost three somethings to go there? And uh, just the, you know, the Greek alphabet that they used, it's kind of at that point where it's like, hmm, people I mean, it looks think cool. about it much. It looks yeah, very spacey. Looks, yeah, it does actually. And then the, the, the other thing that, I, that I'll, that I'll toss out about it is, now, uh, this, is a, this is one of the other things that Johnny and I, in general, disagree in as far as our personal taste. I love solo in Euro games. I okay. love it. I love it. I really enjoy it. I just, I truly, it makes me very happy when I'm playing a Euro game, especially if it's a, a bot that I'm playing against, not, not just a beat score. But I will say that I don't think this game needs it. I just, I don't think that this is a Euro game that needs a solo mode i think this is a game that just needs to be played with other people and it's quick enough it's not you know we're not playing twilight imperium out here it's not playing feudum mm -hmm. you know we're, we're you're gonna be through the game in 90 minutes maybe two hours if you're you know full player accountant carefully considering your options as my wife likes to say she does not have analysis paralysis she carefully considers yeah i just I don't think it needs it. I, I don't. I think it loses by having a, a solo bot. You lose that speculation on the person, yeah. and I, I think it's so important in this particular game, kind of seeing what people are doing and trying to figure out which cavern are they going to take. 
I can look at your board and say, okay, you can't go there. I know you can't go there, but you could go to the other space and then reveal a cavern and just put one person there. And we're close to the end game <laughs> that could give it to you. Yeah. And those variables, and then of course, even just the blowing stuff up and what are they going to pick? And I think those variables make it to where even with a good bot, and I, and I do think the solo works pretty well, uh, having played a ton of different solos, I just think it loses something there. So that, that, that those are my only, my, my only two, two little bugaboos I got. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can get over the, the setup step. I mean, fast enough. I even actually, given that the setup is still kind of random with that sort of thing, I even felt that if a area gets disproportionately more cover up tokens than another one that maybe experienced players can make up that loss somewhere else. But, um, yeah you know like i said if you just throw out you know kind of like i don't care i'm just gonna kind of put some of these out here for most intense purposes that's probably just fine i did play the solo beta which uh, i guess is in development at z-man oh right yeah now. yeah do, do i have to say say it, it, it's not the published solo mm -hmm. right. uh we just happen to know luke and we're able yeah. to get a copy an early copy and it, it, again it, yeah. for me it's not a criticism of the solo working or not working it's i just don't think it needs it yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so. And I feel like there's a, there's a lot of demand for solo modes, even to the point where games that may or may not need them are getting them. And then it's also into into what degree is it just? I feel like you'd be doing the game a disservice if it were only played solo because you you would gloss over and miss some of the things, not really even know that they're there. You'd have you would have moved all the parts around. Stuff would have happened. The bot would have won, or you would have won. But you wouldn't be able to come away and talk about some of that table tension that you get with the push and pull of withdrawing and not withdrawing and uh, the all those 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 dynamics. They just don't feel um, quite the same. So I'm not sure what they'll do with the final version of it, but I, I felt like the one I saw did one thing, which is questionable. I think in solo design is is that it left a lot of decisions to the player to decide for the bot what it would do when all all else is equal and uh i've seen that in some solo modes before and generally that's a very rare case where all else is equal just choose one of two things for the bot and it just takes one whatever because it can't decide um, some preferential system and going down a flow chart you know of 20 different items to finally arrive at the one where it splits that preference um, might be annoying to to make or add pages to the rule book i think that's acceptable though if it ends up being something where most of the time you're making these choices and you can make choices. Um, one of the things is not to make choices against yourself in solo design. Not to say that this one was doing that, but uh, in solo design, you don't really want to have to say, for instance, when it's the bot's turn, it's going to take the resource you want the most. <laughs> like that would be making a choice against yourself. Like, oh man, I really want gold. And, and I know I want gold. And so be honest with myself i need to take the gold out of the market because it will always take whatever i want the most because it has telepathy just to clarify um, her, but th th that's not what the rules say no the, it's not instance. at all yeah. i'm just talking in in hypothetical terms that if if you tell a bot to do something that the player wants or doesn't want it's a weird situation and the inverse is a little bit true where uh it says just make up a choice for the bot and what you'll actually do is you'll always give it the thing you don't want which also doesn't feel exactly like what you would do in a real game that's competitive. If William's sitting here going like, uh, I know that we both want this commodity and there's not very much of it. And William takes his turn and I'm like, that's not the bio cubes you want. 
take the pink gem. And he's like, okay, I already have four of it though. It's like, doesn't matter. You like it. And you're like, okay. Like, <laughs> I mean, that, to be uh, fair, I do like pink yeah, gems. So, so I mean, yeah, you're I mean, so <laughs> of course those things would have to be, you know, uh, in the case where there's some sort of preference where it would have to have five of one, five of the other, right. Sort of thing. 50, 50, but the, the, I think that idea still holds true that, um, a lot of the fun stuff with playing with players like this is you have to get a sense. I know that you know that we want this thing. And when you make that choice, you feel them holding their breath or not when you do that thing. And it's hard to feel that with a bot um, in some of these games, unless it becomes like a, a different type of system, like, you know, a beating the deck sort of systems, right? I think I have enough time to go over here before the event card pops out and is going to catch me and you're just trying to race time or something like that. Um, you can feel those pressures with the bot pretty well. Um, yeah, when it, the more the more there's a, a meta game on top of the game, speculation, indirect player interaction, the harder and harder it is to make a good solo bot for it. And yeah, it well, can be the, done. Uh, uh, you and I actually talked about this when uh mm-hmm. we saw each other i don't know a month or two ago uh, a game that i loved last from last year at Guildmaster. i would just mm-hmm. wish it had had a solo because i love the game so much but but i it, i cannot fathom how it could possibly work because it was blind bidding and making sure. choices of okay well i got this so i'm going to do this uh, but you beat me here but i can still do this and you know and i think some games as much as i wish they all could have a solo mode i think some games they they just don't need it and i just i don't i cannot believe i'm saying this especially because how much i love the dwellings of eldervale solo mode i just don't think cryo needs a solo mode i don't think it needs it and i also am going to say i think this is going to be a game that's going to be great at a con because it's Mm -hmm. quick get a couple people out there throw it out quick setup you know it's not it's not a brain burner like you know, it's not it's not killing you uh, as you're thinking about it, and uh, uh, it, it goes quick. But yeah, it's real slick. Those are all of our thoughts. We went way long, but <laughs> I always Chopping do. Up. Yeah, no, no, that 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 that's okay with me. So everybody who is still still watching, before I let Johnny go, Johnny, what are your words of gaming wisdom? Words of gaming wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, now this could change somebody's life. There's two people still watching this. You could change their life. Well, you know, I I do love player interaction. And I think there might be something to be said about when you're looking for a game to buy and you're asking all these questions about replay value, replay value. Remember that the the biggest variable is who you're playing with. And uh, if that means you get tired of playing with the same person, you need to invite some other people over or bring the game where there's other people it's it's who's sitting around the table is going to change your experience of that game and that might be the same person as they grow and get better try different things it might be different people as you introduce different people to the game or you meet somebody who's better than it than you Um, but the 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 thing is you know board games are (laughs) it's a medium for the people to come together and play with each other and just look at a game as what kind of experience can I have with as many different people or the same person a lot to create that and not just say that because you can switch the board backwards, it's going to be a better game or a different game. It's not necessarily so. Those variables are cosmetic in a lot of ways and they might be so balanced that it makes just nominal differences. But if you play with a player 
who wants to blow up every spot in cryo, say like that, every chance they get is very different than the person who has a preference for loss aversion and, and just wants to take resources and go do their own little thing. That's going to create a different experience for you and uh, find people to play with and, and share the games with. And uh, oh, I don't know how many people in those old games teach or learn. Um, so play games with people. <laughs> that's, that's my advice. Johnny, th- thank you so much for, for joining me. Everybody else, thank you for listening or watching. As always, if you enjoyed this, please like, subscribe, and share. Go check out Sovereignty. Thank you so much for watching. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. That's Earl He's around. He likes attention. He's cleaning his junk right now on the floor. Don't worry about Earl over there. He's just licking it up. Oh, we got we got Earl. Yeah. Oh, oh, he just gave you the eye. He's not happy about what you just did. Uh, Oh, he's happy. He's pretty. Aren't you, you Earl? Yeah. He's a happy boy.